0: I'm here, yeah, I'm here to talk about Kinji Fukusaku films. Mm.
1: Gangster movies.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's... that's uh, not reading. all,
1: but yeah, I watched... A lot of the, them, yeah. I mean, most of them, yeah.
0: <laughs> the yeah. vast majority. Uh, but you have to understand, the thing about them is that they're good, so
1: uh there's that. I didn't, that doesn't, Im- a gangster film doesn't imply that they're bad well it's when it comes what, when, you when you say it like that you know when
0: you say it like that like you know sure <laughs> you know uh, how many one did of the you watch? uh many the policeman isn't there to create disorder the policeman is there to preserve disorder gentlemen get the thing straight once and for all we clear the streets along this route deploy our men
2: and create an impassable barrier a gauntlet, if you will he will have a chance. I challenge you
1: a duel. Oh, wow. I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get
2: online. <laughs> you want to
1: crown them? They crown ass. But they are who
2: we thought they were. And we let them on the hot. It's hot
1: out there. Let's, we all walk out there very, very,
2: very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. My name is Andrew Stasulis, and I am joined here with... Eric Marsh, and Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a topic for the week, a theme, and the other two are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, play with the topic, go to war with the topic. It was my turn to pick. The theme for the week. And I was uh, reflecting on how it's uh, basically winter now. And I find often in uh, the, the sometimes brutally cold Chicago winter, I find myself, you know, locked up indoors a lot. And depending on how nasty the weather can get, I can sometimes feel besieged by the elements, trying to, to, to hold them back. Locked up in my home, trying to survive winter. So it got me thinking about a... I, I hesitate to call it a genre. I don't really think it's a genre, but perhaps a, a subject matter in cinema that I quite enjoy. And that would be the Siege film. I asked the boys to bring me movies... Featuring characters who are under siege. And I can safely say that the boys brought me two of the siege movies ever made. We've got (laughs) a very interesting double feature here that that certainly (laughs) surprised me in many, many ways and in many different ways uh it's going to be a very interesting conversation tonight it's a a a very uh you know patented gauntlet double feature for you know true heads they'll they'll know what's in store but i guess i'm burying the lead so we might as well just bring them out let's get down to it I think that Ryan had the earlier of the two films. So, Ryan, why don't you tell us about your Siege?
1: Yeah, it, it came out a little bit earlier just by a hair, which I, I realized um, while sitting here getting, getting prepped and just writing down the year to remind myself. I found a film that was uh, extremely easy for me to decide on Once I came across the poster, I was looking at a bunch of different Siege films. I mean, there's there's so many. There's so many I love. Um, I think Apache Drums is one of the one of the greats. That was like one of the first things that came to my mind. But I was exploring a little bit more and I was also just thinking about I don't know if it was in the back of my mind, but you mentioning winter and feeling like locked down, locked in. I thought it would be nice to find something set in winter time, And so, of course, I, I came across this poster of all of these children at war with each other climbing over this huge snow fort. And it was colorful. It was very vibrant. And then I learned that the film itself was uh, Quebecois. And I thought, ah, hell, I can't resist. This is, this is the one for me. Who can resist? Who the... can resist? I had a, you know, Marsh, called me out when I originally pitched it, he called it Ryan Core, which is uh, very true. This this is a film that is very in line with such titles as Train in the Snow or or Phantom Town uh, for me. But I got to say, I really, really enjoyed it. And, I you know, I'll concede even before I introduce the film at the top. I kind of thought it would be locked down a little bit more. It's a bit more dispersed than I was expecting. And there's an interesting balance between um, who's being under siege Shifting throughout the film, but it does kind of resort, resolve around that that central snow fort. This image that once I saw it, I couldn't get it out of my mind. So I went with a Canadian Quebecois film from 1984 called La Guerre des Tucs, or The Dog Who Stopped the War. And I gotta say, just straight out the gate, uh, without spoiling the ending. In hindsight, it's one of the most cursed English titles <laughs> I think I've like ever encountered, especially for a children's film. Because oh, yeah. it kind of set this expectation of how this dog is going to stop this war that's developing in the film. Yeah. And boy, oh boy, listeners, you're in for a surprise when we finally get to that. Because it's... Yeah, wait for it. It's not what I was thinking was going down the snow fort uh, toboggan chute. I guess we could say. So this film is uh, from 1984, and it follows a a group of children uh, on the precipice of Christmas break. They're they're all like elementary school students. We started a show and tell session to get to know some of these kids. And there's one boy in particular, Luke, who decides he's going to organize a great war amongst his pals. Uh, And some folks he wouldn't even necessarily consider pals, but they decide to write down a set of rules that will dictate the battles and how this is all going to play out they separate into two teams it's something that they hope won't spill into the you know civilian population of their small town but it's very regimented and they have like clear instructions on how they're going to be at war with each other so there is general luke who you know leads his ruffian gang of friends and then there's pierre who uh at his side has this brilliant little boy named francois who has this grand vision of a medieval fortress this huge snow fort which is what they do end up building um and i will say right off the bat too uh, biggest disappointment of this film that I do truly love is that you never get to see the snow fort being built. You know, you get to see it beset upon and have some trouble. But I, I did think that was like a curious omission, but I, I digress. The rest of this film... Probably because film... they needed a freaking uh, like a... A bulldozer bulldozer.
2: (laughs) actually like erect that thing.
0: that could not have been built by those children. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: mean, unquestionably.
0: But I know you could fake it.
1: Wouldn't it have been so funny to watch them like put like two bricks down and then cut, and it's like significantly bigger? (laughs) They had like some finishing touches. But I, I I, again. So uh, and then what follows in this film is a series of strategic maneuvers from General Luke and his gang as they try to take siege of this snow fort and we have a series of snowball fights between all these children and it's a delightful film it's very inventive the director andre Melencon, is the only thing i could find out about him was that he used to be a guidance counselor and that was uh, sort of what led him into filmmaking eventually then at least why he's stuck making like children's films primarily but you know for a children's production i think it treats the battles and the relationships amongst everyone, and the setbacks and successes, very seriously. I think it's a really interesting portrait of war. Andy, I'm I'm hoping that it really registered with you, and maybe it'll be something that ends up in your cycle for the canon of of certain war films. I was very impressed. I, I had a very good time, and I also think like the thing I really most took away from it is is its milieu being just this frosty northern canadian film about childhood like being a film from the 80s it's it's quite it's obviously very colorful but it still feels like so regionally specific there's so much great outdoor snow attire amongst all I of mean, these it's children like-
2: the movie's like 98% exteriors, I feel. Right. Like, it's 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 an outdoors movie, for sure. Yeah,
1: so it, in that sense, I found it, like, really, really impressive. Um, you know, it's funny, we did an episode on snow last year, and this would have been just, like, an all-timer pick, I think, for snow. So, you know, you get to see a lot of inventive ways of using snowballs, a lot of ways of uh, developing strategy. You know, throughout all of this, I think my favorite character is... Um, daniel blanchet from victoriaville who is sort of a neutral observer that arise and um yeah he he kind of helps bridge the gap but it's really the dog who stops this war that i think you know kind of brings everybody together but it reminded me a lot of being a kid in the kind of war games we would set up, you know, especially with snow forts. So it was nostalgic in that sense. And I think it, it captures that, that energy of like you're just playing a game with friends, you set some rules and you adhere to those rules and the stakes feel very high throughout and extra perk. It's a Christmas film too. So kind of nice. Uh, but yeah, that's the dog who stopped the war from 1984.
2: Hell yeah. You know, just a little funny note. Um, Um, this, this snowy milieu you mentioned, because yes, this is definitely an all timer and a great movie to watch as like winter kicks in, even though we don't have any snow currently here (laughs) in, in Chicago. Um, But I, I mentioned to the boys earlier that I was watching this uh, old TV documentary about um, Italian spaghetti Westerns and they had behind the scenes footage from Sergio Corbucci's, The Great Silence, which is an amazing snow film, but I discovered in this doc that they actually also were shooting on these Chinachita backlots that didn't have any snow on them. They did go up to the mountains for certain exteriors, but they used something like two and a half tons of shaving cream. (laughs) At the studios in Chinachita to achieve that snowy look that you see in The Great Silence. But none of that trickery here. No, this is the real deal. 100% (laughs) Canadian snow. Canadian winter, my friends. Uh, Marsh, how about your Siege film?
0: What did you bring for our listeners this week? Well... I feel like I brought in many respects uh, the opposite of everything Ryan just said. (laughs) Uh, I brought a film that is not nice, brought a film that takes place in August, the hottest time of the year. And uh, mostly it's a film that is not nice. So let me, let me. And also,
1: like, set in hell.
0: Yeah, the (laughs) South Bronx, specifically, (laughs) AKA hell. yeah, you know, uh, I like I like siege films, of course, and I was just trying to find something I hadn't seen, something outside the box. You know, it wouldn't be very gauntlet of me to pick like Carpenter or Hawks, right? That would be too obvious. And so uh, I dug around a bit, and and when Ryan selected his film, we both agreed that it was it was to be a cursed double feature. <laughs> and so uh, the film I chose is. Tenement, a.k.a. Game of Survival, a.k.a. Slaughter in the South Bronx from 1985, directed by Roberta Findlay. This is a sort of Z-grade exploitation film, horror film, I guess. In a sense, she, she was sort of making horror films at the time, so I think we can kind of lump it in there to a certain extent, although Uh, Also kind of an action movie. But yeah, it is about uh, a deranged, drug-addled gang that lays siege to an apartment, to a tenement, full of poor people. Uh, And that is the movie. Uh, Where to begin? Um, I guess I'll talk a little bit about Findlay, because that'll sort of explain, I I think... uh, the film in some ways and why it's yeah this it's deranged but uh she's a very fascinating character and and one of those filmmakers who's been uh sort of reappraised in the 21st century uh and kind of been I don't want to say rehabilitated but there have been sort of like attempts to rescue uh you know yet another woman filmmaker from uh you know obscurity right and Finley uh she saw it all in her in her filmmaking career uh, she began making sort of like sex exploitation films in the 1960s with her husband Michael Findlay who she uh, sort of ran away with when she was 16 years old uh, when they met at city colleges of New York and uh, she was a trained pianist who played piano for silent film screenings that he organized Whoa. and they yeah. And they fell in love. They shared a, a love of classic cinema. And Michael was a budding sort of underground avant-garde slash exploitation, sexploitation filmmaker. And their, their work together, uh, she sort of denies authorship of any of this, but she operated the camera for most of these early films as well as appeared in them. Uh, but they're sort of contemporaneous to Wishman in terms of this kind of like shocking sexual stuff coming out of uh, the 1960s independent scene, and so they made a bunch of films together that were very notorious in how kind of like scuzzy and, and regressive they were, uh, and then Michael in 1976, uh, died in a horrific helicopter accident where he was sliced into many pieces. Um,
1: regardless, Yeah. Uh,
2: Roberta, <laughs> one of the
1: worst ways you could yeah. go what, we, we how, told how Did, it did it like fall on him was he on the ground I, or was he in I, the- I read about it they were like i guess there used to be like a shuttle service of
2: helicopters that would take you from like jfk to like rooftop buildings in new york and uh he was like getting on or getting off the helicopter when it was on like a rooftop and uh the the just helicopter sort of lost control and like flipped over on its side. And because he wasn't on the helicopter yet,
0: the blades it killed Got like him. 20 people.
1: Oh my God.
0: <laughs> yeah. Whoa. It was like in the middle of like Manhattan or something. Wow. Yeah. Just tr- truly horrific. Um, they had a very, uh, tumultuous relationship, but regardless, uh, Finley pressed on after his death, becoming a director of hardcore pornography and then eventually pivoting to, uh, quote unquote, more respectable, uh, fair, sort of straight up horror movies in the 1980s. And then, uh, when her film, uh, Banned, from 1989, uh, was not picked up by any distributor, uh, she retired from the industry and said, quote, there were no more video companies left to sell garbage to. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, um, wow, where, yeah, like, that's tenement. It was made for, I believe, $80,000 over the course of several weeks. They were aided uh, on a couple fronts. They had a, an actual gang member in the gang um, to, to help them out a little bit. And they also had the police commissioner's wife uh, is one of the tenement residents. She was a budding actress and she later appeared in, in a couple Hollywood films. Um, and she's just like a random person in this, but they also like sort of the cops helped them out in certain situations because. The then-current NYPD police commissioner's (laughs) wife is in the movie, Um, so that ought to be good for just a couple
2: police cruisers and a couple choice shots.
0: (laughs) That's that's exactly what they were used for. And yeah, it's it's an incredibly resourceful film, but it's also yeah the opposite of a John Carpenter film, right? If we think of and I do Carpenter as maybe the greatest siege filmmaker of all time, uh, a particular interest of him. Those are movies that have. Amazing tension and pace and spatial work and logistics and, and all that great sort of like legibility that Carper bring, Carpenter brings to his craft in a siege film. Uh, this film. Uh, you know. Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little baggy, you know? Uh, it, it's it's utterly perplexing in so many ways, but we all know, of course, it's because uh, it was made very quickly and very cheaply, and they did what they could to get it done. But I, I should say, uh, this film is horrifically violent, and I mean shockingly so. Uh, some of the worst shit we've ever seen on this podcast, we will probably be dis- discussing Tonight, um, fun fun side note that I think really you made it a pleasurable experience for me is the uh, first ever f- screen appearance by Paul Calderon, the great character actor. Uh, fans of Bosch, of course, out there know who he is. But this is a guy who, everybody
2: should know. Who and, this well, guy, yes, he's in movies.
0: If you are a lover of cinema. We're talking. He's in Miami Vice. He's in Abel Ferrara shit. He's in. Uh, he's in everything. You know, uh, just a classic, great New York actor, and he has no business being in this this movie, a movie this bad. But it's the first film he was ever in. Gotta you know? start somewhere. And he's hilarious. He was killing me. He's like the only real actor in the movie. you know? <laughs> and you can tell too. But uh, yeah, uh, I mean, God we'll get into it but yeah I think this is my first Finley I know Ryan you've seen a couple of her horror films uh, and maybe we can we, you can shed some light on, on what those are like but uh, I was just sort of getting to know her this week through this film and sort of reading about her uh, and she is a very very funny person who you know like <laughs> you know, like an old studio director sort of like it's just what I did for work stop asking me about it you know like there's no great mystery here I'm not offended I'm not an auteur. I just, I just did this for money because I accidentally fell into it. And she is constantly saying things like, "People who like old movies seem to have deep. People who like those old movies seem to have deep psychological problems." Uh, and she's constantly, Spot the line. yeah. I watched this interview with, uh, with her in Brussels from a couple years ago because of the Vinegar Syndrome releases they were doing, and she said like. I didn't know all this was going to come back to haunt me. Why are you people here? You've got nothing better to do, you know? (laughs) Like, just sort of berating the audience. And so, yeah, she's, like, this amazing kind of, at least just one film in, like, an amazing, like, anti-Auteur sort of case, you know? Because, like, clearly... A lot of people dig what she did, you know, and are digging it more and more as it's becoming available, you know. So uh, I'm excited to to explore the the extremely fucked up world of of Roberta Finley a little more. You yeah,
2: know? you know, it's funny because like in in my class last quarter uh at a certain point the 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 conversation came up amongst a couple of the film nerds in class about the the classification of being a vulgar auteur and uh someone had brought up john carpenter as a vulgar and i was like no he's just he's an auteur yeah now roberta finley <laughs> that that's a vulgar auteur you know more people got to see this just so they could learn the distinction between... <laughs> yeah, like what sets you know, the
1: bar. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, well
2: this, this certainly makes the
0: case. So anyway, yeah, long story short, that's Tenement. Uh, it's got a banging soundtrack that I that I quite liked, featuring a, a couple different sort of like genres of 80s music, like rap, synthesizer-based stuff, like really jamming soundtrack. But it is a, a scary and dark and unpleasant film, and I look forward to... Uh, unpacking it with you all and actually one last thing just as you called back to another topic i think here we have a an up all night mm. classic yeah you know as we talked about up all night films before this one's even got the time stamps throughout the yeah. night to just show us uh this is just ongoing you know into the dark night of the bronx
2: in case we Lost track of time and (laughs) might have been wondering if this was, you know, the next day or the next week. No, no, this is all (laughs) happening in one night, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I guess. I mean, man, where to begin with these uh, two films? Um, I mean, they are, yeah, polar opposites in just about every way imaginable. They do. They do share a few. Similarities, siege. I I mean, sort of, you know, because Ryan's already (laughs) let the cat out of the bag. Not quite (laughs) as locked down as most siege films are,
1: Um, by design, of course. These these kids have parents; they gotta go home, you know. Yeah, yeah. We'll 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 get to some of those intricacies, but
2: I, I I guess you know when I reflect on siege films, I often think that. The space is very important. You know, the space is is very important because the question is like, what are these people defending? Now, the space is, I think, in many siege films, uh, meant to be more of a, a symbol for something larger, something larger, perhaps values or ideas that
0: people are defending. Remember where they are in uh what's Apache drums? Yeah. The church they're in the church. Right. They're being laid. Anyway. Yeah. Symbolic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the space, the space is important because
2: there's there's certainly the the sort of uh manifest space if we're gonna get freudian about it, you know, the, the space that we see, the actual space of the film, but then the the sort of latent space, the idea, the bigger the bigger concern here what are these folks battling it out over so maybe that's a good place for us to to enter here like what are these spaces representing in these two films you know what is under siege what is being battled over? What are the terms, right? Ryan sort of alluded to the mm-hmm. fact that terms are laid out in his film, but let's get them both out here, right? What are the terms
1: that are are going to be uh, central here to these conflicts? Well, it's interesting. I feel as though I want to answer about tenement because I was thinking about <laughs> how that all relates uh-huh. to tenement. If we could just start there. I'll, I'll pass the baton to you, Marsh, too. But specifically how... I keep thinking about this line in Tenement when the little girl is kind of crawling around on the linoleum floor and she looks up at her mom and just says, like, I like it here, you know, and as rough as the tenement is, it, it does feel like home for so many of them. But at the same time, it does feel so symbolic. I mean, well, obviously it obviously feels like home for so many of them. But, like, it feels symbolic then where there's this gang that lives in the basement. That's, like, simmering and waiting to start boiling, to start making its way up. But it does feel as though it's this this place where they are, like, they'll just get trapped. They're stuck. Like Yeah, it's all they have, you yeah. know? These people
0: are, are poor, you know, which is a, an aspect of the film, however accidental, is something that you're not going to see in a, in a Hollywood siege film, right? right? And I think that is so much of the film, Ryan, is like how each apartment is decorated. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's a dumpy old tenement, but these are like cool apartments that these people have made their own, you know, and, it, and it's all they have, right? So they cling to it and they don't know what to do right and they have no help and you're right I think again if we're gonna you know analyze this film perhaps farther than Roberta Finley would want us to (laughs) but yeah it's it's the cracks of society it's 80s New York it's the failed policies the failed government you know like here's this fucking gang and then yeah it's got the reactionary like the gang, I mean, we can talk about the gang, but they are just the most... We have to talk yeah, about the Yeah, I mean, they are the most just sort of, like, paranoid like crack academic, epidemic manifestation, you know? Just, like, these drug-addled murderers who have no goals, no plan, no anything, just living moment to moment in, like, a murderous rage, yeah. you know? I mean, we're,
2: we're looking at, like, I mean, this is just straight out of, like, you know canon
0: films like central casting for the screenwriter of this film by the way went on to write many canon movies yeah no
2: doubt about it i mean this is this is death wish the crackdown right here i mean this is this is late death wish stuff
0: Uh, for sure. And so, yes okay, we'll we'll get into also like why this happens because there is a reason, just as there's a reason in Assault on Precinct 13, right? And so initially we're introduced to the tenement and the gang is in the basement and they're chilling, listening to their funky rap playing with dead rats, playing with dead rap, literats, and Paul Calderon's like putting it in his mouth, dude Uh, they're doing drugs one guy is just doing like pelvic thrusts, I mean it's like the weirdest little like group party hangout gang thing i've ever seen it's strange. they're all so weird and they're all just like jonesing for drugs and violence yeah i mean that's
1: the thing like why it ultimately worked for me because it feels like they are literally beamed in from another planet i mean whenever we get a solo moment with any of them it does feel as though these aren't even human beings and everyone else in the film really does feel like human beings And it's like a variety of different cultures that are living in this building. So it's acknowledging that. But instead, we just have like these evil people that have no humanity in them. Yeah, I mean, it is a caricature, but I just think about like so many of those isolated moments, you know, just uh, who who stands around and just goes, I dream of blood. I see blood. Uh, uh, Chaco does. He does. He does. But like, my head is full of blood. Sure. Chaco.
0: My dream... Blood. I'm gonna get my building back! Hell yeah, Chuck. I don't know, man. I wanna kick ass. We to have some fun. I don't
1: know.
0: Hell yeah, John. Yes. We are gonna have some fun. We are gonna get some buddies cut them up, slice them,
1: up, shoot
2: them up. Have
1: some fun, Kick some <laughs> Boy, oh boy, you know. If
2: you've ever, folks, if you've ever played uh,
1: uh, a, a Streets
2: of Rage game, really any of them, basically the gang members here are like, if the little pixelated gang members from Streets of Rage somehow got beamed out of the television and like came to life that's, that's so basically true. what they are yeah they've got basically like color coordinated outfits you know and
0: and yeah they're very two dimensional on on that level, so <laughs> and yes, so they're they are they are wronged uh, in a sense at the beginning when uh, tenement resident Carlos Rojas uh, calls the cops. Is on he them.
2: Uh, just? I don't know if what you, your take was. Is he like the super of the building
0: in a way? It kind of seems like he is.
2: It but seemed that's like not... he was in a weird position yeah. of being somehow. Uh, in the, the weird, you know, politics and dynamics of the tenement that, that he was a figure that, that was somehow above the most of the people in in a way.
0: I think you're right because we see him sort of fixing the windows and, and sort of being this guy that really everyone hates, uh, other than the fact that he is explicitly racist, uh, Everyone hates him just probably because he's like, yeah, this. I mean, he's a drunk slob, number one, but he's also, yeah, the super, I think. That's what I was reading. And which it I want to bring up. I don't think they ever mention calling the cops. Does Is there phones in this tenement? They, they cut, cut the wire. Phone lines. Oh, I missed it. Really it's really fast. It's really fast. I mean, it's oh definitely. This God. is
1: one of those movies that is like intended to be. Kind of floating before your eyes and you kind of look around the room and you kind of, zone, you know, but that's like how it's supposed to be absorbed. That's like what they were expecting people to be doing when it was playing in New York in this, you know, from the minute I watched it, I was like forgetting what happens in this movie because
0: it, yeah, Yeah. it just feels like it has that (laughs) feeling. (laughs) The aesthetics
2: of disappearance for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah. So they the, the gang is arrested, uh, but they're promptly released because they hid their their drugs and their weapons, and there's really like nothing uh that they can keep them on. Yeah, um, that's that's one of my favorite
2: timestamps
0: actually in the movie. So yeah, Rojas
2: calls the cops. They get arrested. It's a very amusing and very funny arrest scene as well. Dude, that um, cop!
0: Somebody ought to just drop a bomb on his place.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they get dragged down to the the local precinct, and we get a timestamp four oh five as the, the 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 people living in the tenement decide then to celebrate. You know, and they have a party. Yeah, they decide to have a party. Pretty normal thing to do for the. The gang that just got arrested from your basement, um, and then we—the next timestamp is 4:18. I wrote it down, <laughs> and we cut to the police station as they're all just strolling out as if <laughs> nothing happened. So, in 13 minutes, according to the logic of this film, got him. These guys were were taken downtown and then just dumped right back out onto the
1: street. It was this the station was probably too full of folks like them. Just yeah. like, no more room. <laughs> Clearly, I mean, what do you do with yeah. them, right? And so, yeah, they, they do a bunch of drugs, and they,
0: they smoke a joint and act all weird, and yeah, Chaco declares that he wants blood, and then they decide that they're going to go back to the tenement, and they are going to slaughter everyone
1: inside. And they're going to do this at a very leisurely pace. Yes, yes. Which I would say, too, is a similarity between both of these films, the sieges occurring at a rather leisurely pace. I mean, when the battles begin and the dog who stopped the war, they can can get intense. But I also feel as though there's so much breathing room, of course, in between the sieges, but even when they're kind of happening. I mean, you know. It's relaxed. Yeah. And I want to go back to your original question, Andy, about what do these spaces represent both to the people who are trying to protect it and then the others who are laying siege because even just now thinking I'm glad we started with Tenement because I started reflecting more about the dog who stopped the war and I feel as though now I it's a little more clear to me like what is what is happening in this because it all kind of goes back to the film starting during show and tell when Luke is last up to go and he seems a little bit self-conscious when he's introducing an army bugle that he found in a chest in his attic it was his grandfather exactly and and they're kind of giving him grief about it they're, there's like a, just a little bit of like childish chiding uh, for him, and he doesn't even get a chance to blow it before the bell rings and Christmas break has begun. And that sours him a bit, right? And I think he was intimidated by the fact that, like, I can't remember even what Francois is presenting, but people seem to be, like, generally uh, it was impressed. His, all his, like, drafting utensils. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Smart. Kid. And Francois also
2: got, got, he got you the boot. Yeah, he got the cane on the stage because he was barely into explaining how all these drafting tools work (laughs) for engineering before he was cut off. For yeah, Luke's Luke's bugle, which was then also cut off. So I think I see where you're going here. We got two guys who feel like they didn't really get a chance to
1: exactly to show
2: and tell they, fully.
1: They've got something to prove because it's important to note that the snow fort, this massive snow fort with you know ramparts and towers, and this is uh, Francois's design. And there's even a moment I honestly feel as though when Francois is having his vision when it's clicking in his head about this medieval fortress it reminds me of when the gang leader is talking about dreaming of blood it's this isolated moment where someone has a vision of of their dream what will be accomplished and what it means for them and to, to me then the place that is being lit, where they're laying siege the snow fortress it's of course an ex- huge sense of pride for Francois because again as we said no children could have ever designed something so elaborate and it's his gang is like seemingly a bit smaller so it seems as though those four children <laughs> built this entire thing and then Luke who sees this thing after he had designed this this great production this great war amongst all the children he's clearly very intimidated by that that they weren't able to produce something uh, on such a scale and i guess in that sense to me that's what the snow fort represents amongst all these children. I mean, if we're going to psychoanalyze
2: these, 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 these twerps a little bit more, um, (laughs) you know, I I think there's even a little bit more to Luke uh, that maybe we're, we're actually letting on here in this, in this um, initial discussion, because it's also very clear, very quickly that like Luke is um is a child who is just fascinated by all things military. He's just uh, a little bit of a a Quebecois warmonger. And it's <laughs> it's like his idea to have this,
1: yeah.
0: this war. He's dreaming about it in the opening shot of the movie.
2: Yeah, yeah. He's yeah, he's dreaming of war, you know? And so he is the one that kind of is like, okay, we're gonna have this war. And then there's this. This moment, this sort of kerfluffle that happens when, you know, hey, we're gonna meet in the shack at two pm to lay out the conditions for my dream war scenario. And when they're even at the start trying to decide, okay, well, what are the teams gonna be? what are the the sides in our army, we get this, this sort of breakdown of of one of the other kids, I forget which one specifically. Pierre. Pierre. Pierre's like, well, look, we're, you know, because Luke is like, we're going to order people to be on teams. We're going to pick people. We're going to order them. And Pierre comes up with the great idea. Well, look, we should allow everyone to choose which side they're going to take. That's right. Who they're going to follow. Is it going to be General Luke or is it going to be General Pierre? And he wants everyone to have the choice. And in doing so sort of dooms himself because everyone, when they have to then decide, well, who are we going to follow? It's like, are we going to follow like, you know, chill Pierre? Are we going to follow this little Napoleon, this little (laughs) warmonger? And they think, I mean, I mean, this guy's got the fucking bugle from, you know, like the Crimean War or whatever the hell, right? Like, we clearly got to go with this guy. He knows tactics. He knows strategy. He's dreaming of this this combat scenario. So yep. they all more or less do side with Luke. Which then leads to this idea from Luke. Okay, well, we have more men, we've got more soldiers. So why don't we put you folks then in a defensive position? You're outnumbered, you're outmanned, you're out snowballed. You can defend yourself. So then from there, as you mentioned, it's when Francois comes up with the great idea. If we're going to defend ourselves, we need to have a hell of a fort and he does get out all of his drafting tools and and then build this monstrosity well with the help of i'm sure the
1: the film's you know construction crew and,
0: and carpenters <laughs> yeah and they probably called stuff. in jack fisk
1: to help with that thing my god mm. oh man yeah but
0: yeah i think that scene was the most telling to me in sort of what this film is about because yeah like it, it does become general luke not versus general P- pierre but like the the cooperative the commune the rebels you know i started viewing Mm. them as right yes luke is napoleon and then pierre and francois and uh you know sophie and lucy who joined the gang right like they all have something to prove they're all sort of outsiders and and they do and they do just that and and the minute that sort of starts to take shape luke's like oh no you know i fucked up like i want i want to be on the other team you know well
2: yeah because <laughs> you know uh luke is out here like rejecting would be soldiers rejecting volunteers on the basis of age on the basis of gender and yeah. that sort of thing and you don't really get that with pierre's crew because they very quickly take on two young women who proved to be two of the most ferocious fighters oh, the most in the whole game and we so. should
0: point out too that francois is vietnamese uh, so he also has extra outsider uh, sort of status in the small club town yeah you know? yeah
2: yeah i mean so the, yeah they 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 sort of then uh quickly then like luke like just gets this kind of like you know uh, fevered desire to yeah. crush what they have to crush what they stand for and does so in a very kind of despotic very uh almost,
0: you know, dictatorial way he starts running his army. Later. I love how much his soldiers complain throughout the entire film and people are always quitting, you know, like we're supposed to be having fun. Like why am I getting yelled at? You <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah. Like
2: <laughs> getting ordered around, getting sent into like absolutely like hopeless
1: scenarios by General Luke. General <laughs> Luke. Yeah, yeah. there's this one kid in particular who takes like a huge brick of ice to the head when he's ascending a ladder on the fort and he's just like what the fuck this like i'm yeah, not having fun this. anymore and he just like goes and sits somewhere else <coughs> Ow! No, like... climbing, the oh wait, this is... yeah. okay.
2: I was horrified when that happened, you know, because like they're, you know, they've got their siege equipment, which, you know, props to the movie for actually having like, you know, they have like medieval style yeah. like siege equipment. They <laughs> yeah. brought ladders and swords and shields and all kinds of stuff to to assault the fort. And, yeah, this poor kid's, like, being sent up the ladder, you know, this first person who's got to go in. They call that in old, like, Napoleonic-era warfare, they call that the Forlorn Hope. The first (laughs) squad that had to assault the breach of a sieged town they expected would take horrifying losses so if you were a part of that unit you were known as the forlorn hope because you weren't expected to survive so this poor kid is part of the forlorn hope and yes he of course takes a massive brick from the wall that looks to be solid ice to the skull and i was thinking like this kid's gonna fucking die. It was only later when he took the hood off that it revealed he was helmet. Wearing like a ski helmet <laughs> yeah. or something because
1: I was shocked that he wasn't just out cold with that brick of ice to the dome. Yeah, yeah that was that was definitely them playing dirty for sure. It is nice how many ski or, um uh like ski masks and hockey masks are around just being you know, Canadian children, dude, catapults made out of hockey sticks. Yeah,
0: yeah, really good. Like this is a film where kids just casually, in one scene, are fixing a snowmobile on the side of the street. Yeah, like they walk by these two kids and they got like the hood up and they're just like, oh yeah, just man, working on the snowmobile. You these know? are snow people. I mean, that one,
2: that one chick just literally goes around everywhere on skis, on cross country skis.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the thing with both of these movies; they have such distinctive milieus and of of course tenement we've we've seen this milieu a lot like you know our listeners if you haven't seen tenement you you get the idea when we say like you know south bronx scuzzy new york filmmaking from the 80s like it's it's very distinct but th- but this really is too i mean it it made me envious i had snowy childhoods but the idea of having perennially snowy childhoods where you could ski around everywhere to see your buds just looks so idyllic it's just beautiful and i yeah yeah i that was like my main takeaway from the film was how distinctive that milieu was and how casual it all felt without like rubbing our faces in it because it just felt like the most natural thing to everyone who's in it like they don't make a joke about the fact that there are kids repairing a snowmobile and are under the hood it's just so plainly presented as if that's that's facts of life facts of life
2: yeah. They, you know, we, you know, here in the, in the, the, the sort of like, you know, Southern area compared to this film of, of yeah. the Midwest, like we're tourists as far as winter is concerned, even though we have sometimes very brutal winters. These are snow people. Yeah. These are people who understand the the necessities of actually like thriving during winter instead of people like us who who literally like shelter in our caves once the snow hits the ground for 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 sure yeah those kids never look cold no they got great no. gear they love it dude they love it out
0: there they would rather be out there than entrapped trapped inside their homes a hundred percent that reminds me that. You know who else would rather be out there? Uh, Napoleon. And uh, I don't know when the last time you guys, or if you've ever watched Abel Gantz's Napoleon, but one of the great scenes in the early part of the film is when Napoleon is at military boarding school and he leads uh, a comeback uh, on the battlefield in an insane snowball fight. I mean, no offense to this movie, but the snowball fight in, in Abel Gantz's Napoleon is like... 10 times as crazy because yeah. it's silent, so. Of course,
2: historically speaking, Napoleon would probably change his tune on how fun winter could be yes. as they
0: uh, trekked <laughs> back from oh, Russia, the losing irony.
2: most of their, most of the army, the Grand Army took with him Nevertheless, to Moscow.
0: The, my point is, is that there's a great snowball fight uh, in Napoleon, and instantly when I looked at Luke, he looks like the, the kid Napoleon from that movie. Like, the, it, it's not an accident. I, I would guarantee you, Melancholm has seen yeah. uh, Napoleon and was well, they, maybe thinking about it. They call that. him Little Napoleon yes, in the film. Exactly. And then there's also, you know, I want to shout out uh, a, a film we had on the podcast a very long time ago Frank Borzaghi's No Greater Glory. Oh, of course. Uh, in which you have to wonder also if maybe that was an influence. And if not, Kind of identical films in that they take war as a subject matter seriously while being children's films and depicting children, play acting, but then shit gets too real, you Mm. know, like just following that sort of idea.
2: Yeah, it's very it's very enlightening to discover, uh, Ryan, as you mentioned in your intro, that the director Uh, began his journey as a, as a guidance counselor for children, because it's when I watch this movie, like that now makes total sense about like the, the, the tone of this film, the idea of this film, especially in comparison to something like no greater glory of, of uh, a filmmaker sitting down to say, how can I talk to young people? About war, how can I talk to young people about the horrors of war and and why it's a, a, a terrible thing, a waste of life, a waste of limb, and and that's really what this film is, you know. Uh, again, like let's let's be honest here. Yes. Ryan core pick for sure. And when, when the picks came in, you know, as Marsh mentioned, there's Hawks, there's Carpenter, there's all this stuff. And of course I should have known we got a, we got a foreign language children's film from Ryan coming at us. So, you know, that just gets the hairs on the back of my neck up when I sit down to watch these films, but like in some of the other cases, I'm not going to give you all, I won't ever give you that. Uh, This film did like surprise me and it, it won me over, especially in that, in the, the, the the seriousness with which it was dealing with the subject. Like this isn't just some sort of like gonzo children's movie of like, what about a really cool snow war movie for children? Like by the end of this film, like you you find yourself questioning all of it, You're questioning the the value in any of what has yeah. happened, like like a, a, a true anti-war film. You know, a, a great anti-war film to me is one in which, you know, by the end we just we we want everybody to go home safe and sound, and we wish that it never had happened, it had never taken place, and, and that's definitely what's going on here. So I, I like I give the movie a lot of uh, props in that regard, and to the director to to create something that isn't like pandering to children as well like it it's 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 treating everyone with like respect and and maturity despite their their young ages you know like the 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 children in this film are all like um you know i felt like i was i was seeing people like learning and growing and stuff like that like actual human beings going through these kinds of processes
1: yeah they were giving legitimate performances you know and this film doesn't have the aesthetics of some of those other children's films that we've we've looked at you know this isn't finding buck mchenry this isn't Uh, MVP too it doesn't have that what's wrong with finding there's nothing wrong well I was actually going to press a little bit when you said like you won't give them give them all to me I gotta say I mean I've had some some wild stuff but my children's film run I feel like I got like a perfect batting average on the, the kids films is there one you didn't like? Uh, I don't know about that. You know, I'd have to go through each sure. of them again individually. There's been
2: quite a few of them. It's on, true. It's true. I mean, pod. Spooky Town
1: right? or Phantom Town, right? Like that one. I mean, I know it's not like a good film, but it's, it's interesting. I mean, same from MVP. Listen, listen, listen. No disrespect, but nobody bats 100, all right? Like 1,000, this is. I mean, this is me. definitely in the train in the snow territory, the surprise, like legitimate film. I I would say when I, when I saw it and that's the thing, it doesn't have a children's film sheen. It doesn't have a children's film rhythm, and it doesn't have children's film performance styles. It's not a film that's even moralizing. And I think in that sense, what you were talking about, Andy, with a with a guidance counselor, it wouldn't just be transparent moralizing. It would, if you're going to be an effective guidance counselor, you're, you're trying to it's conflict
0: resolution, dude. Exactly. You got to like see these different kids like butt heads and and why they butt heads and why they conflict with each other because there's squabbling amongst the armies as well as yeah. against each other. You know, there's a lot of children's emotions going around but it's got yeah it's got a little icy style that uh i don't know yeah Yeah. look there's there's a lot of like
2: moments in this film that were for again a children's film like very downbeat like this wasn't just the kind of movie that's like we got to just keep these kids on a on an eleven the whole time, you know, to keep the energy up, to keep people, uh, you know, involved in like the, their their tiny young developing attention spans, like up constantly with this again like think about like the energy of something like
0: Good Burger compared to
2: this <laughs> yeah. right it's like it's so like frantic because it's like you know hey how else are we going to keep their attention so kids this, are all hopped
0: up on high high fructose corn syrup exactly, in America dude. yeah you know? just, just
2: chugging Capri Suns but like man there's a lot of like moments where we would sometimes just get characters like isolated even uh just pff, looking very sad looking very mm-hmm. down looking dude. very like forlorn and lonely
0: there's a very powerful moment when uh there's sort of throughout the film there's a very adorable character who uh is a pacifist who wanders around in the woods sort of communing with the animals and he has this moment at the end of the film when he's observing the final battle uh from the hill and It's this crazy moment where, like, they do a sound bridge where you hear, like, real weapons being fired, and then he's on the hill observing it, and then all the sound goes out, and he, like, forlornly walks away from the camera over the hill. Yeah, he he turns his back on the the whole thing. It was, like, so, it was like, what I was, like, you know, I was floored. Yeah, it
1: has that thundering FX, because there's, like, goofy sound effects when you're up close, when the sound, when the... The snowballs fling. It's like boing, jump, boing, You know things like that. But yeah. then we step back and we're with Tigi and he's on the hill, and it's like, boom, boom. like it, it sounds like a horrific battle that you're hearing way off in the distance. And he says, "I just, I just want peace." And he he walks off to the horizon. It is, and he they linger on it for so long. It's not just played as a gag. He legitimately wants peace, and that's what we're left with as he wanders off. It's very touching. Yeah, and he does say that to the other observer who's like the the war correspondent.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, she's got the little camera and she's like, I got to get in there and capture all this stuff. A little indictment of the media (laughs) as well, feeding on all that suffering.
1: I like the idea of uh, there being a Peter Watkins Culloden type film, but for this war for these children. I actually if only they had an eight millimeter
0: camera.
2: I, you know, no, I, I, I actually believe that Watkins started by doing, uh he did one of his first things he ever shot was I think like an eight millimeter recreation of the Hungarian uprising from the nineteen fifties. And I don't remember if he did it with like children, but I think he just basically did it in like the backyards of, you know, wherever he was from,
1: like Kent or something wow. like that. So yeah,
2: you know, oh, I, I think that the
1: the connection is is certainly There. There's also that really downer moment in the church when Luke wanders in during choir practice and talks about, you know, even in real war, they knock it off around Christmas. And there's like a bit of sadness embedded in that when I think he's really feeling it. He's feeling the severity of the beast that he has wrought amongst everyone.
2: Dude, everybody's miserable in this movie. As we pointed out, (laughs) I mean, like, aside from all like the 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 sort of volunteers who've quickly realized the the folly of of what they they sort of got swept up in once once, yeah, the snow bricks start <laughs> flying, and the 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 snow paintballs start yeah, yeah. flying as well. The, that's one of the most dastardly moments of the film, almost like a chemical weapons attack. You know, when the when the uh, <laughs> assaulting army is coming for like the next day, they're planning like the second. I think it's like the second assault. The the defenders get the idea of injecting paint into the snowballs and they start just pelting them with this. And of course it's ruining everybody's winter coats and, and getting in their hair and the dog of course also gets, gets nailed by the paint and they're all like very upset because like, look, snowballs
1: is one thing, but like, dude, you just ruined my new puffer vest. Like this is (laughs) bullshit. My mom's going to be mad. And not even that their mom's going to be mad. They all like their gear. Yeah. They take pride in those cool outfits. You know, they're like, well, what the fuck? You know, I got paint all over my stuff. Sure. But I again, I I can only imagine if I'd gone home like that, what my
2: mom would have had to say. She wouldn't have let me back out of the house. There's no doubt about it. But yeah, everyone like is just really bummed throughout this whole movie. It's not this like very fun experience just starts to... To become this slog that everyone
1: has to to see through <laughs> to the ending, even when they don't understand what they're fighting for anymore. And conversely, everyone is extremely upbeat and in a good mood uh, in a film with <laughs> children's visual aesthetics. In Tenement, I it's just a joke. It's also extremely dour, oh, grim, boy. rough visually film that that uh, yeah. does not make you feel good. <laughs> While you watch it with chemical warfare too, <laughs> no,
2: in a very different way. So I guess, you know, like for me, a sort of like transition between these two films, right. Is I guess thinking about that, you know, the, the, the ultimate, again, this is what I'm sort of getting at. I think the the, the vision for the world <laughs> that you see in like a siege film and, and where as much as like, you know, the, you know, La Guerre de Touc, <laughs> the, the war, of the hats or, uh, you know, the dog who stopped the war, whatever we want to call it. Like, I think ultimately in spite of it's kind of like downbeat qualities, uh, it's a very like hopeful film. It's a very Mm -hmm. like optimistic film, but like using tragedy and using, you know, violence uh, as a sort of like way to, to teach us something about the world. um, Tenement, is a much more cynical film. It's a much <laughs> darker view of humanity uh, throughout, the, 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 I think, the entire, like, journey that everyone kind of goes on. You know, as you said, it's like, yes, its DNA is rooted in this kind of, like, you know, Man, crime in the inner cities—it's out of control. That like cannon core kind of like the war on the streets that we see. You know, crime—it's rampant, it's everywhere, and it's it's evil. And yet in a way, whether again, consciously or, or subconsciously, uh, Roberta Finley is also like peeling back the curtain to show us like the kinds of living conditions, the, the systemic violence that people have to deal with every single day of just being impoverished, being poor and, and having, you know, horrific living conditions and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, uh, the the movie itself then is is a total total condemnation of of
0: just people <laughs>
2: in general.
0: I think. I mean, even more. I mean, to me, it's even more upsetting because it's unlike the other film, it's a film that has no moral. There's no catharsis. Right. When Tenement ends and almost everyone is dead, there's a few survivors, but like what do we take away from from this? Literally nothing. Yeah. Right? Because Glad I'm yeah. not
2: there. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: what I took away. Yeah. And, and again, I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way. I mean it makes the film all that more upsetting because there is no catharsis. There is no moral. It's just a horrible thing that happens we watch it and then it's over uh i don't know man yeah uh there is a a, so much like brutality
2: throughout this film i mean i i i noticed that it was like rated x i think when it when it was first released specifically for the violence um and, and I will be honest, you know, we, we did our gore episode and and I, I, I've certainly seen movies in my mind that I think uh, are much more graphic and have much more gore. But I think it's just the way yeah. that the violence uh, is is both <laughs> yeah. depicted and and like carried out yeah. that that really is what is so deeply troubling and unsettling in this film. I mean, the first actual bit of, you know, real grotesquerie that we, we witness, you know, when the, the gang has, yeah, gotten hopped up on, on marijuana cigarettes (laughs) or whatever. I think I kind of made that joke to Hillary that it's like, why do all these like crime movies from the eighties always have people like smoking pot and then being like,
0: Now I want to (laughs) kill everyone, you know. Totally normal reaction.
2: But a character does reference angel dust, so I have to say they were probably smoking angel dust, not weed. Because if they were smoking weed, I don't think they would have just then decided let's go cover ourselves in dog blood and murder everyone in the building. (laughs) That's usually not. Hey Hector, pass that fucker, man.
1: Uh,
0: and as we see later on, they they all have expansive uh, consumption sort of tastes like. They're, they're doing all the drugs. Yeah. I mean, like everything they get they're doing coke, they're doing heroin, yeah. they're drinking, they're, they're doing it all. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know, yeah. In this
1: orgy. of <laughs> violence. I mean, you saying Andy that, <laughs> that the gore hits so much different because of the way it's presented makes me think then with, when we're talking about the substances, the film really got to me when one of the key gang members um injects some substances into his arm and then, like clearly has a a terrible adverse reaction. It's like immediately o doing ODing or like, I can't remember what he actually was it was it revealed well, that it was something else? Was well, it like poison?
2: so so again, like this movie. <laughs> It is, it is, you know, it is, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to insult Roberta Finley here, but this is a very shoddily constructed film on a, on a certain level, you know, certainly in, in, in the, the area of pacing, but I think there is just in its kind of very like threadbare quality, there are key details that, that just aren't executed very well. And so in this scene that you're talking about where a gang member, you know, breaks into this apartment that is occupied by a junkie and his sex worker girlfriend, uh, it all, it all clicks. Yeah. The junkie, the guy, he tells his, his girlfriend to hide under the bed and he's sort of going to try to defend her or save her. And I think in his mind, it's like his heroic, his, his moment of, Heroism, I guess if you can call it that, his heroic act is he's like, well, these guys are probably going to want my drugs. They probably know that I have drugs. They seem to be like there for that purpose, that they, yeah. they know that this guy's into drugs. But he kind of like goes and crawls away and then he kind of like prepares something and like swallows something. And in my mind, I think what he was doing was he's like, these guys are going to grab my drugs and he puts rat poison in his drug bag. So then (laughs) knowing that these guys are going to shoot up, which one of them immediately does,
1: he's then just, yeah, he just, Dies (laughs) because wasn't because if I'm remembering correctly, isn't that the couple who like they're fucking in bed and then they notice some rats in the room and they're just giggling like, "Ooh, get the rat poison," as if that's like seemingly romantic. But I I bring up that scene with the him then injecting the rat poison directly into his veins because when he starts seizing up and just dying in front of his compatriots and he like kind of falls over and leans into one of them, the guy who had previously soaked himself in dog's blood that dude's reaction it's not even shock uh like of course there's no compassion but it's not even shock he just like pushes him off and just was like get the fuck off of me man and then like laughs as he he dies he makes a a specific
2: comment
0: he says (laughs) i told you to let me go first bro
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh shit (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. That's what well, like, yeah. that's like, what he said when he's looking being, at his yeah. dead body on the ground. But his like the first words that come out of his mouth is like that dude falling into him because he's convulsing, and he's just like, "Get the fuck off of me!" And I'm like, "How? How damaged do you need yeah. to be?" Where like that's what you say to a dude, yeah. I thought the, even the I thought the gang members were friends at least. I mean,
0: there's there's no honor among these. Look, you know, he cuts the guy's dick off because he's like in another room. Yeah, because one guy's like, you know,
2: like like the kids in the the the, the snowball war. Like one of the guys, like fuck this yeah. at a certain point, and then yeah, the gang leader punishes him for his
1: transgression by cutting off his his penis or something like that. Look, because it is like, what is the incentive for these guys that their leader gives them drugs? I don't know.
2: I mean, again, look, yeah, they is, are on
1: another plane of existence,
2: <laughs> dude. And, and look, I'll be honest. Everybody in this movie, for the most part, I'd say you know ninety percent of the people in this movie are just acting very <laughs> weird, acting very strange. And and in spite of like the moments of like yes, humanity that we get to see with people, like this movie is filled with some of the most boneheaded decision making you will see in just about any bit of. Uh, cinema. I mean, look, when all of this is going very bad, when it's very quickly going very bad, some of the things that these people do, I mean, the gang members, sure, on the one hand, but the people as well, right? I mean, there's the old lady, you know, who, who at a certain point is just kind of like, I'm just going back to my apartment <laughs> to get like a first aid kit or something like that and marches
0: down as the mayor's wife, or I'm sorry, the police commissioner's wife, the police commissioner's
2: wife. Well, she's certainly carrying herself like a police commissioner's (laughs) wife, thinking that she's above like the laws of nature themselves Yeah. because she just goes downstairs in the middle of all this on her own and is immediately carved
0: up in the bathroom. Yeah. Uh. Cut
2: to ribbons in her bathroom. I mean, like what? is going on with
0: people in this movie. I mean, yeah, they're other than Washington, you know, the like the widowed uh like worker guy yeah. who, who clearly hate him he even says like I never wanted to have anything to do with you people. <laughs> yeah, he hates like, everybody. everyone in the apartment. Just like this, you know, just this tough, like, solo guy, you know. And he, of course, is like thrust into the de facto leadership role because no one's really doing anything. No. They kind of are just like, oh no, everyone and are just hanging
2: out in the hallway. <laughs> no, they all
0: gather. They all gather in the hallway and kind of just like do nothing. Uh, I mean, some people help in certain ways, and some people have their own coping strategies. I mean, of course. There's the old woman, you know, living in there. And she, uh, throughout the film, is wielding a baseball bat. And she's wielding it from the get-go. And she's also the person who, at their, like, cocktail party, they, there's some disagreement over, like, you know, one woman's, like, shit-talking all of them in the tenement. And, and the old woman is like, uh, I have been here 40 years, Leona, and nobody's going to make me move. Then you better hide, honey. Hide? Never. You know, and she walks around with a baseball bat and is constantly bonking the gang members with the baseball bat and getting away at like oh, yeah. age 75 or whatever. Yeah. Scuttling she hits, away, She dude. hits Paul
2: Calderon like yeah. right in the balls yeah. like in, in a really good moment. But, but yeah, aside from like her and Washington, everybody else is just completely like, you know, yeah. like chickens with their heads cut off. Like panicking, but but also like being very chill in their panic. Apparently, because yeah. like they're not barricading themselves; they're they're convening like in the stairwell, you know, seemingly like twenty feet away from these knife wielding like angel dust <laughs> like <laughs> maniacs. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there are like interesting ways that you can kind of like read the characters a little bit. So for me, like with Washington, I, I also saw his his ability to kind of like be one of the few people able to defend himself. I, I think time-wise we could infer perhaps that maybe this guy's a Vietnam vet, you know, like he recognizes the trouble before everyone else. He, he goes into like survival mode. He starts trying to develop plans. And the old woman that you mentioned, like, you know, when she lays out that timetable, like I've been here 40 years, I came here 40 years ago. This is what? 85. That's 45. She is a Jewish woman. We see that, you know, she's having a, a, a sort of like, um, you know, uh, she has this kind of like, you know, I, I'm sure some sort of like religious uh, act that she does to commemorate her dead husband, and and yeah, she's a Holocaust survivor. I think it's very safe to read that in in her, and so she is again another person who sees the danger that they're in and and does something about it. But
0: a little bit a little bit of uh, psychoanalysis here. You know, Findlay was the daughter of Hungarian Jews who fled Europe. You know, and she grew up in the Bronx. And, and she's been asked about this. And, and she said, well, you know, she grew up in like a very Jewish neighborhood of the Bronx, and she didn't really have much contact out, outside of that world. Uh, but for her, it is in that sense, a sort of personal film like and they went to the Bronx to film it. Obviously, they shot the interiors in uh, some studio in Harlem or something. But uh, so there is that
1: element to it. That's sort of again, you can read it. Oh, that wasn't like a real building, the interiors? Those were sets? No, uh, those were sets. Interesting. I kind of was wondering almost, that's great production design then. I'm actually really impressed because I, I almost walked away thinking like, yeah, this is just, <laughs> this, this is like, these are just real apartments, yeah. you know? That's impressive because one of my favorite images is that old woman sitting on a chair covered in plastic wrap while she's drinking her orange juice. And I kept thinking like, Yeah, yeah that's somebody's place. No, yeah.
0: well they said too, you know, it was uh, it was rather dangerous uh-huh. when they were filming. And that they uh, Finley said that they found human bo- human bones in the open lot next door while they were filming. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
2: Okay. Yeah. So they they didn't they 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 clearly didn't want to get tenemented themselves
0: while they were making yeah. I think the they game. were trying to limiting their limiting their sort of like public exposure in like the middle of a gang war. Police type commissioner, of
2: vibe. you know, yeah, a couple of squad have, cars
0: notwithstanding. Right. You know? He
2: probably said to them like, "Yeah, you guys aren't going to be filming like there, right? <laughs> like, you're not taking my wife down there, are oh, you?" they like, did
0: indeed. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Wow. <laughs> Yeah.
2: But yeah, other than that, everyone is just acting so, so, so strange
0: to me. Yeah, I mean, it honestly feels like a lot of it is improvised. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know there was a script, but at a certain point in these like group scenes, especially with the gang, just like what they're saying is like so fucking weird and so bizarre uh, that it's like some of it had to just have been made up on the spot. And given the speed of the production, I think that's a sort of reasonable inference, you know, that they had like latitude. Um, Because I know too, Finley was not particularly interested in like performance and mostly thought of herself as a camera person and she liked lighting but said like well they never could really afford too many lights unfortunately but that was sort of like if she had a passion it was shooting and it was lighting and, and and editing it wasn't like Working with hell, she was working with like porno performers. Oh, yeah, most of the time, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, and that's that's about the level that you get from. Mean, like she half worked with Holmes, dude. You know, like
1: <laughs> one of the
0: great ones.
1: <laughs> Man, you know, I can't stop thinking about the fact that that this was the set because one of the other things I really liked about this movie was how even in the quiet moments you could hear shit going on around the apartment building so like when that when that old woman is like doing her her dinner for herself her solo dinner you can just hear noise from the neighboring apartments like you could hear people below or outside causing a mini ruckus or just living their lives like whether it's just kids making noise um and there was i i honestly thought while watching and I'm like oh yeah they must have just been like shooting in a place that people were living in and they, that was just happening and they couldn't control it but then that's impressive then that they took the time to lay that in there, like, really subtly in the background just to make it feel as though the atmosphere, this was a real place that people lived in. So kudos. Yeah, that's, that's,
2: that's interesting. I mean, it could have been, like, a... You know, they,
1: they could have had, like, a building set, Sure, sure. Too, and there could have know, just been other sorry, stuff going on. Yeah, yeah,
2: Yeah, I'm sure there were plenty of New York productions, you know, the Cannon Boys rolling in, being like, we you need another, know, like, Death Wish movie <laughs> in a building like this, you know? But, yeah, I mean, boy, oh, boy, the... Fucking like like Rojas. I mean that guy. Whoa. I mean holy I mean he's just hitting the bottle the whole time and doesn't really seem concerned for whether or not he's going to live or die.
0: That's for that's I for mean, sure. this is a film that uh smashes a portrait of, M- of MLK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's
2: It's not pulling any of its punches in that regard. But I think that's the thing, you know, it's like comparing it to Carpenter as you did earlier and like why Carpenter's films uh, that are are similar to this. I think the, the most direct, you know, comparison you could make would be to something like, you know, yeah, Assault on Precinct 13, you know, dealing with a similar milieu, even though that's L.A., um, is, yeah, that it, it, it could, even when you're dealing with a static environment, still feel very, like, propulsive, that the mm-hmm. action keeps moving. And even when there is, like, downtime, it's it's sort of like earned downtime. There's so much downtime in this movie that just feels like... The gang is like, yeah, taking a smoke break or something like that. And for taking as a bloody sex break, yeah, a bloody sex break or whatever, like for as, as and, and I know that they do like make a comment about like, we can take our time, yeah. but like, boy, they are taking their time. And in that time that they're taking more often than not, the people don't seem to be doing anything other than just like looking down the stairwell, wondering when the next attack is coming. Now, there are a few moments where it does kind of pick up and like Washington starts to actually create defenses, but so many people have already died by that point. I just kept feeling like, you could have got to this a little bit. You could have rigged up the the very cool
0: electrified like box spring for the stairwell trap. Like well, that took work, you know. He had the children running around grabbing parts for him at a certain <laughs> point. <you laughs> the know? kids
2: were the most again, like the the kids in our other movie. The kids were the ones who were most active in oh, terms yeah. of developing sure. their defense.
0: When they boil the water,
2: they boil the water. Yeah, <laughs> I mean there are some like good moments there, but but it's crazy to think of something that is so it's so it's right there to have this like just constant kind of pressure and push and pull and that it it just kind of hangs there from time to time for its runtime which is what
1: like sub 90 or is it right around 90 i actually think it's a little over oh. surprisingly okay enough. yeah yeah Like 93 or something. (laughs) Yeah. Did you have a favorite kill? Oh, no. No, they uh, were all icky and the blood was very liquidy and scary. (laughs) It was. Yeah, it was was like wet paint. Yeah. (laughs) It had like a nasty texture to it. I mean, I liked the scissors in the eyes was good. The crowbar in the belly. I kind of like that because they had to rig up like a crowbar coming out the, the other side. The guy getting his like dick sliced off. That was really yucky. That was a bad one. I mean the the
2: boiling water uh to then like Rojas pushing uh like a refrigerator down the stairs was a good moment, you know. Uh, yeah. Mhm. But
0: uh, again, I like that I, the one. poor I, woman that went for the window, you know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh brother. <yeah. laughs> At least they addressed that, you know, for such a low-budget movie, it's a, it's a good move to be like what the what like what is the audience actually thinking? Like, why doesn't someone just fucking like leave? climb out a window? Yeah, you know, yep. and uh, a woman, a poor woman, tries, but uh, yeah. she's because
2: uh... that's a key component of a siege film. You know, is you always have to try to set up like a. Why don't they just call for help? Yeah, they cut the phone line. We got that. Why don't they just get the fuck out of there? Well, they can't. You know, why doesn't somebody go through the window? Well, they'll
0: you'll see what happens.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You fuck around, you'll find out. You know. So they do cover some of those bases pretty well, and I could say they they cover them better than uh, the 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 dog who stopped the war. Because as we said, like not a pure siege film. Because a. They they break every night. They go back to their homes, which I get. You know, we're dealing with children here, but they also just abandon their fort yeah. at several yeah. key moments. They have a a very cool built-in sort of escape system with a toboggan that that comes out of like a hollowed-out section of the wall, so they can just. Sled away from the trouble when they're being overwhelmed. But that immediately says to me, you guys are not good at actually defending the first sign of trouble. And you hit that, you know, escape chute right away and just gave the fort over to General Luke and his other army. I mean, they traded that thing back and forth like three or four times. I mean, not a very good defense, if you ask me.
1: I agree, but it's also kind of hard to resist not taking the toboggan chute exit because it looks so fucking fun. It reminded me of down the street when I was growing up, we were like kind of on a hill and there was this house that it had a... uh, a pretty like steep little drop off for for their hill. And then if you like angled your sled the right way, you could keep going to the right. And then it sank even further into the bike path, which was another like steep drop. And so if it was, th- it was thick into winter, you could do that. And then that fucker set up a fence because he was tired of the kids using his little hill, which I thought <laughs> was like notably cruel. Uh, but it reminded me of that. Like just the, the, the distance they cover on that toboggan has to be, Twenty-five times the size of what I was just describing. They oh, yeah. they seem to just like head off into the distance. Yeah,
2: no. Don't get me wrong. It's badass. It's super cool. Yeah. But like, what happened to defend this thing at all costs? Well, like, no. They 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 just like, hey, give them the fort. You well, know, they're playing
0: the long game. You know.
2: I guess they just assumed yeah. that they would get it back the next day when everybody had gone home, which they
1: did. So. Yeah, they did. They did. Do you guys ever have like an uh, an an extremely notable snow fort growing up? Like do you have like do you remember one that you were proud of? Not too many to name here.
2: <laughs> mm. I never I never had that, but we did one year um the the dads in the neighborhood built like a massive igloo mm. and we all uh kind of spent an evening in the the igloo together. We we ultimately didn't sleep in it. We we came very close to it, but then I think the the moms kind of like jumped in and were like, No, you're not sleeping there all night. But it was very big. I mean, you could almost stand up inside of it.
0: There was a lot wow. of work that went in. That's it. cool. Yeah, it
2: was very cool.
0: But yeah, I mean it's also that the four just sort of becomes, like, the symbolic thing that they're playing for, even more so than the bounty that they've set up. So, uh, yeah, we go back and forth, and they decide that uh, it's pretty much even to this point. I would disagree, but uh, (laughs) nevertheless... They decide on one final battle, you know, one before uh, they have to go back to school, before vacation's over. They said to to settle
2: it all. But here's the thing that I don't understand in terms of, like, what they were, like, settling, right? Because, again, they laid out these rules. But I was like, okay, but what are the, like, like... How do you actually win? Because they're nailing each other with snowballs and nobody's going down, you know? So, yeah, like, uh, that's something I did keep wondering to myself. It's
0: like. Whoever's flying the flag? I don't know.
2: I guess, but how, you know, and again, I get that you could kind of, like, overpower them and, and take it over. But I was sort of like, well, but shouldn't it be that, like, if you get hit with a snowball, you're out? You know, and there was no, none of that going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering. I was like, is this going to be to the death? Because no well, one is, is actually like going down when they get hit with snowballs.
1: That's the thing, because what does end this war, the English title of this film sets this expectation that this dog Cleo is going to stop the war. And you're thinking about that throughout the film. Because the dog isn't really emphasized that much. You, you see Cleo every now and then. You know Cleo's old. We have the gag where Cleo has paint on his fur and he jumps on the couch. But I'm sitting here watching this movie thinking the same thing as what we were just talking about. Like We don't really know what the end point is. Like how someone is actually going to come, off, uh, come across as the champion by the end. And there's this long sequence during that final battle where it keeps cutting back to Cleo who breaks the chains at the dog house that they just built for him at home. Eventually the chain gets snagged on a fence and it's, we're constantly cutting back to the dog knowing that it's on its way to stop the war if we know the English title of this film. So I keep thinking like, oh, what's the dog gonna do? It's gonna do something really clever. And instead the payoff is the dog climbs under the tower someone used a shovel to carve out a little secret entrance into the tower during the siege and that tower collapses on top of the dog and kills it. And I just couldn't get over how weird it was that they decided then for the English translation to say, this movie will be called The Dog Who Stops the War, <laughs> so everyone will be sitting here thinking about how the dog is going to do it, and then we're going to pull the rug from under them by killing the dog. Yeah, It's also delivering ex- exactly what the t- says it certainly yeah. does but you don't it's I like guess it's I just, so
2: spot on it's deranged it's it's <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah that's what i was thinking and then yeah these films both have like two nice dogs killed um very true one's a, a disgusting death of being like totally eviscerated um it, like notably cruel too because it's a blind man's dog so it's like going to all that effort to skin the dog yeah um, a
2: service animal like it's brutal
1: exactly yeah. And then this one, you know, Cleo was old. It was probably fast. <laughs> they say freezing to death is the best way to go. I, <laughs> I mean, don't think so. it froze to death. Uh, yeah, it was crushed well, yeah, to no, death. No, it's true.
2: <laughs> it's true. not yeah. a good way to go. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah. I did think that moment was really strange, maybe because all the kids were just so stunned. Um, I did not think that that was going to have killed the dog. I assumed that they like what would have stopped the war then was that they all banded together to dig the dog out. And it was like, oh, thank God we got to him in time. Yeah. But that's now what happens. No. It's just, uh, it's just Pierre and I think one other person digging up the dog, and it's it's dead when they find it.
0: Yeah. Well, no. and there's another there's another added thing here that I want to flesh out because. You know, Ryan's blaming the, the small, you know, younger brother of Francois for why the castle collapsed. And I frankly disagree with that analysis. Uh
1: Let's, let's set I the stage. I'm just state. saying that's where the dog goes. That's yeah, where the dog correct. is when it happens. Correct. But that's not what causes the structure yeah. to
0: collapse. Now, what causes the structure to collapse is the escalation brought to the battlefield by General Luke, okay? Mm-hmm. Set the stage yeah. for the final battle. It's not the same players, right? He has recruited a mercenary army, bribing them with candy. Yeah, And not even yeah. given his own troops candy. Yeah. The regulars didn't get any. Um, <laughs> no. And so he shows up with this massive army, every kid in town is there, you know, with their hockey helmet on and their homemade catapults, right? So because he is so lonely and because he wants to win so bad and like play his bugle or whatever, and in honor the memory of his war hero grandfather, uh, he escalates the war. He brings a massive army. Uh, and that I think is really what broke the fort which wasn't made for you know like 50 50 kids or whatever but I do want to point out that there's a great thing where uh they're all lined up out there and I know all of us now have watched uh the new Takeshi's Castle and they've dug out (laughs) a little like you know defenses uh, on the fort and it's like oh my god it's like the charge at the beginning of Takeshi's Castle because all these kids like get fucking stuck you know these some of these kids are like so young and they can't make it over the little like snow defenses they've built in, and I was cracking up. It was like serious Takeshi's Castle hours. Holy shit, you know? yeah.
1: I it was triggering something in my mind, uh, and that's exactly what it is. And I hadn't realized it until you said yeah, it, yeah. Because some wow. did turn around to help like pull people yeah. over in the same way that <laughs> yeah. Takeshi's
2: Castle some will help each other get yeah. over the wall. Th-
1: that's because that's what I liked in that first episode of Takeshi's when Suzuki. Really, like, he saves a ton of people. Oh, yeah. yeah Hog in the spotlight.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, only to be shamed throughout
2: the rest. <laughs> that's right. selfless <laughs> act.
0: That's right. But, yeah, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> then, no, it's yeah, clear, it's,
2: right? It's, it's pandemonium. Yeah, that, that is where, like, we get this this kind of, like, yes, ultimate anti-war statement. Because as the war has escalated, as it is spread, that's when things become truly, like, Horrific, truly apocalyptic, truly cataclysmic, the the walls come down, innocents die yep. in the middle of all that, you know, the dog is really the, the civilian casualty in the midst of, of this, this, you know, horrifying battle, but, but yeah, you know, it's, it's. It's where the director like ultimately wanted to take this film because again, like he didn't want it to, to be this kind of, again, I think pandering way of saying like, oh yeah. And then they saved the dog and then they all learn to work together. That's Mm -hmm. better. Like, no, he wanted a, a a total, yeah. total condemnation. And and that comes through like a serious lesson that should put things into perspective for these, these, these also like very troubled young
1: children. Dogs gotta die. I wonder if the animated remake maintains the same ending. I'll have to report back. Please do. It's called uh, Snow Time (laughs) with an exclamation mark. (laughs) Okay. More of a War of the Hats guy. Yeah. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And then, yeah, the ending of Tenement is very funny because it ends during uh, an apocalyptic rainstorm on the roof of the building. Uh, where there's like the final boss battle. And uh, skipping ahead a bit, then it's funny because when the survivors leave the building, the streets are are bone dry (laughs) (laughs) not a puddle to be seen Uh, i think it's very notable i think it's very notable
0: that the not the only survivor but the last survivor who stabs paco uh with the like satellite dish or or the weather vane or whatever on the roof uh yeah it's a pregnant woman a young latina pregnant woman that that ultimately overcomes this. And there's a lot of focus on her in the film and like taking care of her. I think that is really like the the emotional heart of the film is like a lot of different people being like, "Are you all right?" And, like taking care of the pregnant woman. There is like some solidarity around that as opposed to like building defenses or grabbing weapons or whatever. Not a lot of communal work there, but the fact that a, that a pregnant woman uh, is sort of like, yeah, the final girl, I think is notable. Because one thing I learned is that in the 70s, like after Michael Finley died, is when certain scholars and other people started kind of like looking into Roberta Finley auteurism. and And I believe it was... Either Haskell or Mulvey, someone said that, like, was arguing for her authorship of one of the films they co-directed because there's, like, a prominent pregnant character featured in it. And they were like, no man would write a pregnant character into a violent sexploitation film. Not a chance, you know? So I think that's an interesting sort of, like, yeah. nugget there, again, in the case of uh, some kind of auteurism, you know? Sure. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it,
2: like, again, like, the, the, what's here, right, is, is certainly like, uh, a, an interesting depiction, again, of like, uh, the, the people who have like fallen through the cracks of society or are often, uh, underestimated or are, are invisible people in our, in our daily lives, especially in like, you know, struggling urban environments and that sort of thing and like you mentioned the the sort of like the solidarity the idea of like hey we we have to take care of each other to survive the situation the cops aren't coming no one else is coming to help us it's 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 up to us to to overcome this 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 challenge and difficulty, like that is definitely there in the film and and I think it is like one of the admirable qualities to be found in a movie that is ultimately just a very like disgusting like <laughs> indictment of
1: of humanity in yeah. all shapes and movies sizes. themselves yeah, and <laughs> movies themselves, you know sure yeah, absolutely. well, I guess after having those that film indict all movies, what film would you would you go to the bat for? Uh, like the old woman in Tenement, what, what film would, what siege film would you defend? I mean, you guys have already mentioned, you know, like, like, you know, some of the masters, Carpenter,
2: Hawks, like they're, they're like, really, really like two of the, probably the icons, the pillars. Uh, So resisting the, the, the obvious with, with mentioning, Pretty much any of their movies that they made, uh, you know, one that that I'm a big fan of from like the sort of like classical Hollywood era. Is by Zoltan Korda, movie called Sahara with Humphrey Bogart. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. I came across it. Oh, it's really good. World War II. Humphrey Bogart plays like a tank commander there in North Africa. They're on the the run from the marauding like German Africa Corps. And uh, he sort of collects a bunch of like you know, Commonwealth soldiers, you know, they get a little bit of everybody, uh, a Senegalese soldier, a British unit. Uh, 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 I think there's an Italian deserter that they also like take and they find themselves at like the only water for like hundreds of miles. And at the moment they arrive, so do the Germans. And then Humphrey Bogart, as the sort of American sergeant, has to kind of put this motley United Nations crew together to defend this 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 well in the middle of the Sahara Desert from the Nazis. Uh, it's a great movie. I Couple love it. Remakes too, right? Couple remakes. Yeah, they made a really weird remake in the like early '90s with Jim Belushi in the Humphrey Bogart role, yes. which is fucking crazy. But but yeah, I would never think like Humphrey Bogart. Who should replace? him Jim Belushi I, I I don't know about that but it's not bad for what it's worth and another one that that I know you both are are fans of as well uh got a shout out Tales from the Crypt Demon
1: Knight. Yeah, I love oh, that yeah. movie so much and uh, friend of the pod Ernest yes. yes
2: Ernest Dickerson like yeah he he nails it with that one uh, Demon Knight is really good folks if you haven't seen that one check it out uh so those are two off the top of my head that I'm, I'm a big fan of.
0: just want to give you a heads up i didn't pick it but you know i was seriously considering uh, a 90s television movie where randy quaid and laura dern uh, are in the ruby ridge the siege at ruby ridge oh yeah i've seen
1: that yeah <laughs> yeah <I've seen> that. <laughs> we were Figures. he was like we should do this and i'm like dude it's three hours long yeah
2: <laughs> yeah no i've seen that god damn dude.
0: wow yeah
1: all right. Oof. I'm glad you didn't pick it, though. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. This was this was uh,
1: something. Um, well. Yeah. When I was watching Tenement, I texted Marsh being like, I think this double feature is illegal. In many uh, countries. Yeah. yeah, probably. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
2: well, how are we going to uh, pay for our crimes next week? What do we got coming up next week? It's Ryan's, Ryan's top.
1: Yeah. It is. It is. So I had um I had a big a big birthday this weekend. I oh, I shit. turned 30. happy birthday. Dude, what the hell? Oh, happy you. birthday, man. I didn't even <laughs> Thank you. Oh my god. <laughs> happy birthday. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And it was um it was startling and I pff, thought i had more time but my mom did have me when she was 30 so i have kind of come full circle which was like kind of a shock to the system to learn after the fact but it got me thinking about uh getting older got me thinking about aging and i always kind of think about i mean i guess because i have a december birthday i think about that at the end of the year and i think about you know just a year having gone by right it's like a double dose if you have a december birthday And then I was thinking about how, you know, I sometimes feel as though for a while I shied away from movies about aging and the elderly uh, because I'm like afraid of hospitals. And I'm not saying that the next topic has to be hospitals or anything like that, but the topic next week is old age. And I would just say the older, (laughs) the better. (laughs) Bring me films that center around... Old age uh, in the elderly. I feel like we haven't done too many films on the show where those are the those are the key key protagonists. Um, so yeah, very loose. Just give me some old folks, and we'll we'll think about getting grown up. All right,
0: all right. As always, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud. Like, subscribe, send emails to Conlin Movie Podcast at Gmail. Thanks,
1: everyone. The <laughs> on. Get this, maniac!